Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. I get to preach about 1.5 times a year, uh, and this is my first uh, time actually in a series. Normally I kind of do kind of one-off things, uh, talk about worship a lot, uh, but I'm going to continue us through our study of Ephesians through the series Church Hangups and Hookups, and we are going to start that with reading the passage. And Ross gives really long passages. This is crazy. I can only find like three other pastors in the world that go this long on a passage. So we'll see how we do. Uh, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 20. And ushers are going to stick around because they have some stuff to give you if you haven't gotten it yet. But we are going to read this passage first. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And it's shameful to even, even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And as promised, like any good substitute teacher, we're going to show a video. Real quick. Mel, will you show this real quick? We're going to keep the lights up. This is actually going to be more of a game. If you know exactly what this is, I want you to call it out as soon as you know what this is from. Anyone? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Goldeneye, who got it? Excellent. This was the intro to, hold on, you'll, you'll know the music. You'll know the music. This is the intro to the greatest video game of all time. Goldeneye 007 on Nintendo 64. Okay, Mel, you could go ahead and you could cut that. It goes on for like five minutes. It's all first level. That was one of my favorite games growing up. I, I've been playing it since 1997, and I, I am proud of it. Uh, when, I, when I was preparing this message, I kept thinking about this game. I kept thinking about the lingo that is used in spy movies, like in the James Bond franchise. And I specifically kept coming back to the word motives. Every spy, every secret agent or double agent, at least in Hollywood, has motives. And sometimes they're called objectives. These are tasks that the spy is charged to complete, and to do so, a certain set of actions or behaviors need to be used. But in plain English, a motive can be both a reason and a cause. It makes you move while also being the reason why you move. It can be both catalyst and calling, something you're driven by, and something that you strive for. 
All right, to move on, I'm going to ask the ushers to hand out some extra bulletins. If you didn't get a bulletin this morning, we've actually geared the back of it to be specific to some notes that we're going to do today. If you didn't get one, could you just raise your hand? And uh, we're going to, uh, also there's pens at the end of your aisle if you need those. So if you look at that bulletin, there's, uh, uh, there's going to be some things as we go through in the note sections. Yep, you can fill in the blanks as you go. Now, when we think about the word motives as it pertains to Christianity, I believe we primarily think of two possible things. We're going to throw this up on the screen. The first is maybe as a Christian. We may think of something like the story of Peter walking on water motivates me to take chances and trust Jesus. The second would be for those who are curious about Christianity or maybe even those who oppose it saying, I wonder what Christians' motives are. I wonder what they're trying to do. Today we're going to look at this word motives for the Christian life using this passage from Ephesians. The goal today is to look at this word more like a spy would, and by doing so answer that second question about what Christians' motives are. What is it that both drives us and gives us something to strive for? And lastly, before I carry on today, I want to give some credit uh, to some other pastors and authors for their messages on this passage that I studied in preparation. They are uh, Tim Keller. Emma, can we throw that slide up real quick? Those guys are Tim Keller, Bruxy Cavey, Andy Stanley, and N.T. Wright. And in the words of the English philosopher R.G. Collingwood, if an artist may say nothing except what he has invented by his own sole efforts, it stands to reason that he will be poor in ideas. If he could take what he wants, wherever he could find it, as Euripides and Dante and Michelangelo and Shakespeare and Bach were free, his larder would always be full and his cookery might be worth tasting. So hopefully my studies of their work will add some flavor uh, to my proverbial cookery, uh, which I think means the food I make, but I am going to apply it to messages. So let's go ahead and dig in. If you look at the top of your uh, bulletin today, you're going to see kind of how we're going to lay out this analogy. On the top of your notes, you'll see two sentences in italics below the heading, Food for Thought. They say, a spy doesn't become a spy by achieving motives. A spy achieves motives because they are a spy. A Christian doesn't become a Christian by living a certain lifestyle. A Christian lives a certain lifestyle because they are a Christian. Now, this is crucial We have these lifestyle motives driving us as believers. However, we get into these lifestyles or the motives because of something we already are. We first accept Christ as both our Lord and Savior. And as we draw intentionally closer to Him, our lifestyle reflects it. Our motives for behavior begin to reflect Christ's own character. It's not the other way around. Flipping this process would mean that we could save ourselves by deeds, but no deed can truly save us. Only Christ can. And today in Ephesians 5, Paul highlights three main motives for the Christian life, along with the behaviors necessary to achieve these motives. But remember, all of this comes after you begin a relationship with Jesus. The three motives Paul highlights are knowing sin, having wisdom, and being joyful. So we will cover these, and by the end of the message, my goal is to summarize the whole teaching in one sentence. So here we go. Number one, this motive has four main principles, and you can fill them in as we go. The first is, the core of sin is idolatry. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Now, Ross covered some of this last week, but we're going to go back into it just a little bit. Paul is not just speaking against morality, impurity, and greed. He is using these three behaviors as identifiers for a specific sin. No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Three separate types of offenses, immorality, impurity, and greed, sharing the same consequence. And this typically doesn't happen in world culture. I cannot be thrown into jail by being greedy. But I can be imprisoned for being immoral enough to assault somebody. We are used to a life that has specific consequences for each particular sin or offense. So let me show you something that should illuminate this idea. In the spring of 2013, the Pew Research Center conducted a global study, which included 40 countries on this topic. What is morally acceptable? Now, for the most part, they determined that the results depended on where you lived. So check out this graph on the, graph on the screen. On the left, you have the issue that was pulled on. And the numbers represent the percentages of the three possible voting options in this order. That the behavior is unacceptable, acceptable, or not a moral issue. Now we're going to put a second graph up on the screen that is just responses from here in the U.S. But the point of this is not for us to judge how moral our society is. Although it can provide some of that information but rather it's to illustrate how we, as the collective human race, each have our own idea of what sin and immorality looks like. And furthermore, it shows that each of us feel we personally have the power to classify what is sinful and what is not, or even how sinful something is or is not. But how can Paul take then three different sinful behaviors and say they're all the same by sharing a single consequence? Because what Paul is pointing out is that these are just three possible behaviors of the same sin, and that is idolatry. So quick illustration. How many of you have weeded a garden or a lawn before? You could get into it. Come on. I'm a worship leader. I need to see some stuff going. All right. Yeah, what happens if you just chop off the top of the weed? If you just chop off the, the leaves or the head of it, what happens? It grows back. And in John 15, 5, Jesus tells us that if we are rooted in him, we will bear good fruit. And here in Ephesians, we see that if we are rooted in idolatry, our fruit will be immorality, impurity, and greed. Three things that are totally contrary to Christ's character. These three example behaviors are our weedy leaves that happen when we are rooted to any idol. So rooted in Jesus, we produce good fruit. Rooted in an idol, we produce weeds. I used to have this old station wagon. Uh, I ran it until the transmission was like all but inoperable. Uh, My last six months or so with this car, it didn't even have reverse. I was the guy like pedaling it out of parking places. And, And first gear was sketchy to say the least. So to try to milk some life out of it, every few days I would just dump a bottle of Lucas transmission fix into it and floor it through first gear and jump it into second, and then I'd be in the clear. On, on the outside, the goal was the car to be drivable, but it was never going to be fully reliable or function as it was intended unless I replaced the transmission. I could deal with its behavior. I could take away some of the side effects, but the root of the problem was the transmission. If you take a repeat sexual offender and you lock them up away from all human interaction, 
you may take away the opportunity for them to engage in that behavior that harms or affects others. But who's to say you'll take away the root of their problem? Who's to say you'll take away what drives this sin? Who's to say you'll take away the idol of domination, revenge, power, anger, or pleasure that fuels their behavior? If I never tried to start up that old station wagon again, its behaviors wouldn't have been known or seen. But that transmission problem would have still been there. Now here's the sticky part. Idols don't always look bad. Idols and their inherent sin aren't always socially negative. Sometimes they are socially applauded. I've said this before in messages, and I know all of the rest of the pastors here have said it in some way too, but anything we put all of our heart into, anything we find our identity in, anything that we can't not do seven days a week has the potential of overtaking Jesus' place in our lives and becoming an idol. And frankly, I believe that the socially applauded idols are the most dangerous because the world is not looking to eradicate them from society. In our society, there is no law, no law against those who are workaholics. There is no prison term set for those who are preoccupied with their higher education. There is no judicial trial for being preoccupied with your influence on the PTA or making improvements on your home to gain as much equity as possible. I think this point can be illustrated a little better through lyric and melody. So if you would please take a look at the screens. The first of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shall have no other God before me. It is possible to do something or engage in a behavior or live a life that is externally in compliance with the law of God, but for an internal motive that makes it sinful. Are we able to look at our careers and know when they're becoming idols? How about our families, our our spouses, our kids, our education, our favorite political or social cause? What if we get preoccupied with the church as an establishment more than it being a collected group of believers? The music that I seek and study and rehearse to lead you all and worship each and every Sunday has a strong danger of being an idol for me. And that's just one of many. What about for you? And no no matter how good your deeds or callings are, if Jesus is not there, it is vanity. It can become an idol. If you love anything more than God, if you find more meaning in something other than God, if your heart and soul and body is preoccupied with something that keeps you away from God, if you center your life around something more than God, it is an idol. Even if it is a good thing. It can and will eat you alive. You will become preoccupied with the fear of losing it. And that thing will become the sun in your personal solar system. It will become its own faith and religion with its own doctrine and demands of you. My heart sinks hearing and saying this. And I've gone over my message a few times this week. This all seems really harsh and even scary, but I promise that as we move on, you will see that we are given an opportunity for freedom from these things. And for those of you watching the clock, that was my longest point. So the rest of of them move pretty quickly, especially after this first motive. So let's begin our next point. The language of sin is deception. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, before we dive into this point, I just want to take a quick second to get us on a level playing field with the word wrath. 
this is a point I will directly attribute to my study of uh, Keller's teaching on the passage. But typically, when we think of wrath, we think of somebody with a temper. Someone that cannot control their power, perhaps someone that finds joy in smiting you. Um, And many of us have this twisted view of God. But take the word wrath in the Bible and in ancient literature, and it's really just talking about settled judicial condemnation, not angry smiting. Um, God's wrath lies upon sin because sin deserves punishment, and we are all guilty of sin. So in paraphrase, God's wrath is simply God letting consequences of sin run their course. And since we have all sinned, we have and will be on the receiving end of some of those consequences. But thankfully, Jesus has paid the price for us to not have the eternal condemnation for it. Many sermon over. Let's move back into the regular description of the point. The language of sin is deception. We could trace it all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. And here in Ephesians, Paul's warning is about the same thing. He says, let no one deceive you. Now, of course, we need to make sure nobody else deceives us. But we also need to make sure that we don't deceive ourselves. Have you ever found yourself talking yourself into sinning? Have you ever tried to find an excuse to behave in a certain way, even though you know it's wrong? I've been there for sure. And my deception voice sounds a heck of a lot like rationalizing. It's like I'm convincing myself to do something wrong. It's literally like wearing your own defenses down. So what does that deceptive voice sound like to you? I challenge you to identify it and just be aware of it. The next principle of knowing sin is sin is sin, even when it is not duplicated. Let me explain this using a visual. Think of a four-circle Venn diagram, which is Really, really hard to draw, by the way. I tried doing some freehand. Lucky for you, that one was made by a computer. So now think of these circles as lenses. And imagine that the more lenses there are stacked in one area, the more clearly we can see. So each of these lenses now represents a part of your life that teaches you about sin or morality. I have boiled down all of these influences into four groups. So we have God, the workplace, culture, including government, etc., and your personal relationships. On this next diagram, I've put some examples of these uh, areas uh, and what they may deem sinful, um, may or may not deem sinful. So now it may look different to you, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. Uh, There are just some examples to get our wheels turning. Some of these areas of our lives will duplicate the same ideals of what sin is. And maybe there are things that you know to be sin because both God and culture say so, or because both your relationships and workplace say so. Maybe all four four of these areas of your life have some sin ideals in common. Maybe only three do or two do. Even though it is easier to see what sin is when all of these areas of your life agree, that center section of the diagram is not the authority. The buck does not stop in the middle of these lenses. If God says it is sin... It is sin. Even if no other part of our life agrees, God holds the authority on defining what sin is. And here is our last point for knowing sin. We are all capable of sinning. Yes, capable is the missing word in your blank spot. I know this doesn't seem to be that profound of a statement, but follow me on this. Verse 8 says, For once you were darkness. And if we continue to be darkness, we will do dark things. Um, let me illustrate this with a true story from world history. So Yahil Dinur 
was a Jewish author who is best known for his writings based on the time he spent as a prisoner in the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. Some of you history buffs may know uh, that the man who was a big part of the concentration camps for the Nazis was a man named Adolf Eichmann. And after World War II, Eichmann kind of vanished. And years later, he was found and in 1961 was put on trial for his war, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Denur was called in as a witness. And at one point, both Eichmann and Denur were in the same room. Denur broke down and eventually fainted. His breakdown was so severe that the judge had to intervene to bring order back to the court. Years later, in 1983, Mike Wallace interviewed Denur about the incident. Wallace asked if it was fear or bad memories that caused the episode, and Denur responded in paraphrase that no, it was none of these. Rather, all at once, he realized Eichmann was not this godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. Denor said, quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. We've been talking about putting off our old self and putting on our new self for the last few weeks in this series. And our old self is darkness. And if we allow that darkness to grow and be nourished, there is no telling what deeds of darkness we are capable of. I know that's deep. It's pretty intense. Paul comes out of this passage just swinging at the top. But just like the passage said, God has called us out of darkness into light. Living in relationship with Jesus can free us of that darkness. Darkness is not an unavoidable death sentence. It is an option. And as people in a relationship with Jesus, we get to become light. So let's move on to our uh, second motive that's highlighted in this passage. And that is having wisdom. To have wisdom, you need to know the following. First, it takes knowing where you are in space and time. Those are the blanks on your page. Knowing where you are in space and time. Starting in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The days are evil. Sounds like a zombie movie. Or like a screamo band, one of the two. Um, And that phrase can definitely cause some discomfort for sure. But I, I don't think that Paul was calling us to paranoia. I think he is, however, calling us to an awareness of our culture and time and history. So ask yourself, where am I, both in space and time? Think, does my location both geographically and historically make me more susceptible to sin? Let me illustrate this with a quick personal story, and hopefully it will give you at least a small glimpse of what Paul is calling us to do. When I was in high school, probably a junior or senior, I was in a talent show at the school, and I was playing piano and singing. I sit down at the piano, and I realize I have gum in my mouth. So on stage, in front of a few hundred folks, I take out a piece of paper from my pocket, spit out my gum, I place it on said paper and lay the paper on the piano. I do my song... I then put my gum back in my mouth, put the paper back in my pocket, and proceeded to exit the stage. The very next school day, the assistant principal calls me down to the office and says, tell me why I shouldn't give you a detention. I was dumbfounded. I literally had no idea what I did to deserve disciplinary action. He then reminded me of the gum. I just wasn't thinking. It was after school hours. I I didn't really think about the age-old no-gum policy. In other words, I had forgotten where I was. And whether the sin was intentional or not, 
I was at risk to face consequences simply because I forgot where I was and who was around me. Now, in this particular case, I got out of it, uh, but we are not always so lucky. The same rule is true in the rest of life. Awareness of where we are and who we are around can allow us to exist in virtually any community or society without being blindly pulled into sin. If we are aware of the dangers of our surroundings and influences, we will sin only out of our own choice. The second key to having wisdom as a Christian is Knowing God's will. That is the next blank in your paper. In verse 17 it says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. This may seem like either an overwhelming statement or an underwhelming statement, uh, depending on how many sermons you've heard in your lifetime. Some of you may be thinking that knowing God's will means memorizing the Bible cover to cover, and you're all like, I don't even know what the book of Habakkuk is about. Uh, Don't freak out. Start with this core truth. No matter where you are in your faith journey, God's will always boils down to love. To love Jesus and to love others as Jesus loves them. And this is a process. The more love that flows in and out of your life, the more the Bible will take on deeper meaning to you. And the more obedient you will desire to be to that love and those teachings. If you want to know God's will, I challenge you to invest in relationship, invest in serving, invest in your church, uh, invest in your church's family. Dedicate time to studying scripture. Listen to sermons. Ask questions. God's will is just like the Christian life is. It is learned through relationship and process. A couple of months ago, uh, myself, Jeremy, and the children's staff went to the Orange Conference in Atlanta. And one of my breakout sessions was with John Acuff, who is one of the leading uh, believers in the social media industry. The reason, uh, or the session he led, was all about enhancing social media in the church. He had a lot of great things to say, uh, but he said something that really stuck with me uh, that I, I could actually remember without looking at all the notes I took in that breakout session. He said, you will never finish social media. You will never come home from work and say, I did it. I did social media today. It's done. I complete it. Uh, the same is true about God's will. You'll never close your Bible and go, I got it all. You can live it. You can learn it. You can do it. But we will never grasp its entirety in this lifetime. That may be very unappealing to some of you, but for others like myself, that is one of the most refreshing things about Christianity. There is always more to learn and experience. All right, everybody, we are rounding the back nine here. Let's move to number three, our final motive for today's teaching. Being joyful is our final motive. Most of this point really lives in verse 18. The first two points about joy uh, happen in verse 18 alone. First, the world cannot give true joy. This is highlighted by an illustration in the first part of verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Why do we as humans get drunk? I'm not asking how we get drunk, uh, but why? Now, I know some of you may not agree with me, but Paul isn't saying that drinking is a sin. If you're really upset with me, we could go for a beer after service and talk about it. Um, (laughs) But seriously, what he's pointing at here is debauchery. Now, how many of you have ever been debauched? How many of you are debauched right now? It's a weird word, isn't it? It sounds like frat boy slang for being really drunk. Uh, But it actually means excessive indulgence and sensual pleasures. The point is, being drunk makes you more likely to do things that you wouldn't do sober. It's like weakening your immunity to sin's deception. 
just like we covered in our first motive. Paul called out immorality, impurity, and greed as a, a way to identify idolatry. Think of that like saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And here Paul identifies debauchery and warns that if you don't control yourself with alcohol or anything else that may weaken your reasoning, our chances of falling into debauchery go up. So imagine that as saying where there is spark, there can be flame. And like many of us know, our tolerances are different. Uh, Some of you can drink a 40 of Bud Ice and stand on one leg, do a Rubik's Cube while reciting the alphabet backwards. Um, But if uh, if my wife Mel has more than two glasses of wine at a wedding... uh, She's a social butterfly, okay? So be humble enough to know your boundaries with anything, be it legal substance or otherwise, and then run that knowledge through the filter of wisdom and knowing where you are and who you're with. But back to my question, why do we get drunk? Read the second uh, sentence of verse 18. But instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only reason, but a lot of people get drunk to drown our sorrows. Uh, We don't want to feel something that is bothering us. And the alcohol depresses our brain's ability uh, to feel those pains. It makes us feel kind of happy. If being drunk felt bad, not just the hangover, uh, nobody would do it. But the good feeling it gives can't even hold a candle to what the Spirit can make us feel. Maybe you indulge in alcohol. Maybe you indulge in your job or your kids or your book club or anything. Overly indulging in anything is our attempt to fill this joy void that only the Holy Spirit can fill. This is another backdoor to idolatry. The same second half of verse 18 also leads us to our next characteristic of having joy. It is being aware of God's presence and instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you another story from my teen years. I'm I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seats. Um, when I was about 15 years old, I was on a bus full of students and we were heading out to some sort of field trip. And now the bus wasn't totally full. Um, there were some other open seats, but there was this girl, Carla Dotson, and I am changing her name to protect the innocent. Uh, she was very pretty and a year older than me. And she sat right next to me. There were other seats, uh, but, but she chose to sit next to me, and I was 100% aware of where she was. She literally had all of my attention. At one point, the windows were open on the bus, and her hair was blown around. It's like slapping me in the face, and it smelled like this sea breeze of some sort of fruit concentrate and hairspray. And you better believe, on the way back, I was anxiously waiting, desiring, and expecting for Carla to sit next to me. As soon as she got on that bus on the way home, I was fully engaged. I was totally aware of her presence. And I never felt that way again until I met my beautiful wife, Melinda. Um, If you can relate to my story at all, imagine if we were all that aware of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings us God's presence here on earth, and it is available to all of us All of the time. In other words, the spirit, much like Carla, is always on the bus. The question is, are you desiring to have the spirit take the seat next to you? Imagine walking into church every Sunday that aware of the spirit's presence. How much would it change your worship? What about the spirit in your home or in your car or at your job? That's my prayer for each of us today, that we are all excited and aware of the spirit's presence in our everyday lives. And here it is, the last explanation of the last point. You deserve to be joyful. 
We find this highlighted in the second half of verse 18 all the way through verse 20. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound awesome? Could you imagine that being your natural, normal, base behavior? Walking around, singing songs filled with music. If that isn't what joy looks like, I don't know what does. And the crazy thing is that life, that feeling, those actions aren't just motives that Paul gives us. Those are gifts that God wants to give us. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Sometimes we humans are good at putting things off, even good things like joy, because we either don't understand how great true joy is or even how accessible it is. Brian Regan is one of my favorite comedians. He has this bit about getting our eyes checked and getting new new glasses and how weird it is that we put it off. Like, how weird is that, that you could go, I could see better today, but I'd rather not. I'll see better tomorrow. You know, I'll put it off. We, We do the same thing with joy. We know it's there. We've been told that God gives it, but we fill our lives with excuses and substitutes. Now, I can't cover all the reasons why uh, we put off being joyful or even why we put off getting new glasses, but I think there is one really big reason, and I want to close with that today. I think we all too often put off being joyful because we feel we don't deserve to be joyful. We feel we don't deserve to be in a loving relationship with Jesus, especially as we comb over a passage like this. Maybe we feel convicted about our sin or a lack of wisdom or whatever. For whatever reason, we just don't feel we're good enough to have joy, especially not joy from God. Here's my last story to explain this point. It's not from high school, so you're good on that one. It is a story that has been told many times, though, but hopefully it brings this point to life. Imagine a faraway kingdom from long ago, and in that kingdom is a poor, plain, penniless girl. She is not very pretty, and she doesn't have any money. But somehow, in some way, mysterious even to her, the great prince falls in love with her. He gives her gifts, and he dresses her up, and he puts her love and well-being in the deepest, most central place in his heart. Right in the moment they give their wedding vows, this girl takes on the name and identity of this prince. The two become one. They share a name. They share a kingdom. They share riches. All things that once only belonged rightfully to the prince, he now shares equally to her because he loves her so much. We, all of us, are the girl in this story. Because of Jesus and us accepting his gift of a relationship with him, we are made beautiful. We are made members of a grand kingdom. We share in his inheritance and we are covered in his love. Our love and well-being is tucked deep in the center of his heart. The girl didn't have to prove anything to the prince. He just wanted her love, a meaningful relationship with her. The same is true with us in Jesus. Understanding the truth of this joy is revelation. Living in joy is the response I call you to today. That joy has the ability to lead us to a life that looks like the end of this passage, a life that includes a heart full of music, words filled with beauty from the Spirit, and a life that is full of thankfulness, a humbleness that is driven out of reverence for Jesus. 
as promised, here is the message summed up in one sentence. Knowing sin, being wise, and having joy are all motives of the Christian life. However, none of these things are worthwhile or truly attainable without a relationship with Jesus. Now, as the worship team comes back up, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is always a great way to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. But today, I want you to also remember that it is because of his sacrifice that we are able to have this type of relationship with God. And through that, we can practice discernment with sin. We can have wisdom and we can have true joy. Will you pray with me? God, we ask that if it's not already known that your spirit be made known to us in this place, that your presence fill us, that we desire to have it. God, that we desire to not have cheap substitutes anymore. Yeah, we ask that we don't fool around with drink or ambition or sex or whatever it is to try to fill something only your spirit can fill. And even though sometimes it seems like there's a lot of hoops, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of things to know, there's lots of words and teachings, and I may not even know where to start. God, we ask that we start with knowing your will by knowing your love. And that we start this whole lifestyle, this whole set of motives with the catalyst of being in a relationship with you. As we come to the table and celebrate this sacrament today, we ask that the body and the blood of your son remind us of the sacrifice that he made so we can be in this amazing relationship with you. It's in your name that we pray and continue to worship. Amen. Please come to the table. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.